anybody that goes off and says, all right, well, I'm going to make a change. I don't like this company anymore. And I'm going to go start my own thing. That just triggers a whole lot of things that have to happen. And it's different from when you were an employee to then becoming what I would call a solopreneur. You go start your own business all by yourself. You are everything. And the financial planning, in my opinion, is so much different than when you were an employee or even different when you have a whole bunch of employees in a company because everything leads to you as that solopreneur. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Louis Giannis. I am the founder of WealthNet Investments. Today, we have an interesting topic, and I'm really excited about diving in, so let's get going. Welcome to the Market Call Podcast. This is Louis Giannis, founder of WealthNet Investments. I am really excited to talk to Gabe Nelson. He's a certified financial planner. He has a book out, which is very interesting. It's about solopreneurs. It's called the Solopreneur's Money Manifesto, How to Master Your Finances and Create the Life You Want. Gabe, nice to have you on the podcast. Louis, thank you. I'm excited to be here. We were just talking uh, offline before we came on that you like to come up to Colorado. I live in Colorado and you like to come out here. Tell me about what your big expeditions that you like to do up here. Oh, I'm a snowboarder. And so we get out there a couple times a year in the wintertime and I usually hit Summit County, the Vales, the Beaver Creeks, Keystone, Breck, Copper, where we get out and we'll get three, four days of snowboarding. I got a buddy and I that we go, we bring some of our kids and we just have a great time for a few days. And then I was just telling you this past summer, my oldest daughter on a whim, who's never been an outdoorsy person decided she was going to work in a national park and applied for like, I don't know, 30 or 40 jobs and ended up applying also on a whim for a raft guide position. And she actually got a raft guiding position in Cotopaxi, Colorado, and spent the summer being a raft guide. So we then had to go out in the summer to see her as well and love Colorado in the summer as well. So you're living in a great place. Well, I'll tell you, next time you're in town, you have to look me up. We'll have to do coffee or something. I want to dive into this concept of solopreneurs. I remember I actually listened to a podcast probably about maybe seven or eight years ago. There was one person. I wish I could remember his name. He started a podcast about solopreneuring, and I think he actually coined that term. Gosh, I wish I remember his name. Do you by chance remember who that guy is? I don't know. I know when I was doing my research, I was looking up all kinds of podcasts, and there was a few who had them out there that was like, solopreneur hour who's been around for quite a while there was another guy who's an attorney he had the solopreneur grind i'm not sure where it came from i just know i heard it and i loved it immediately well it's so timely right now to talk about this you know with everything that's been going on in the economy and in corporate america and technology and of course the pandemic it's really led to a lot of people saying you know what i'm going to go out on my own i'm going to strike out on my own i've got all these skills and I'm going to be a solopreneur. So let's start a little bit with your background. You actually are a certified financial planner. Can you tell me a little bit about your path? How did you get to this place where you are right now? Well, I started out in college, learning and getting an understanding of freedom 
and I always go back to this, especially when there's anything to do with solopreneurs is freedom, is in college, I had an opportunity to work for my future father-in-law where in the morning I'd get up in the morning and I'd go fill in vending machines in this small college town of the different manufacturing places. And so we do that. And then in the afternoon, I would go out and I was trying to sell what's called a coffee service. And so I would go to corporations and businesses and offices and try to sell in what's called an office coffee service, bring in my machines, bring in my pots, hook it into a water line and bring in a better cup of coffee than they could get at the grocery store at the time. Now, this was back in the 1990s. This was before Starbucks really came flying into the Midwest. <laughs> and so I started to get a feel for self-employment. And I started to get a feel for sales and I started to figure out what was I going to do when I graduated from college. And I realized I wasn't going to go into my future father-in-law's family business, which was fine. It was actually a blessing. And I started to figure out what it is that I really wanted to do. And that put me into wanting freedom. I wanted freedom. I wanted freedom to choose who I worked with, freedom to work when I wanted to work, freedom to make unlimited income. I wanted everything that you would want in a self-employment piece. But what I didn't have was I didn't have some great idea that I could go sell. I didn't have some product. I didn't have a skill or a trade. My skill and trade was being able to talk to people. So I landed in the insurance and financial services industry, more in the insurance side. And I built up a pretty nice little business from scratch right out of college nice. and it wasn't enough. And so I decided to move my way into management and found out I am a terrible manager of people mm -hmm. pounded my head against the wall for a few years. And was like, okay, I just need to go back into the field and just be an advisor. And so I had morphed my way to the life insurance side of the game, jumped into just being a financial planner, financial advisor inside of a big insurance company that had access to investments and securities and financial planning. And I did that for about five years and realized I hated big companies. What about the big companies did you not like? What was the biggest thing that bugged you? The biggest thing that bugged me about big companies was all of the restrictions that were absolutely ridiculous that you had to go through to just take care of a client. And I'm not, and I never did anything crazy. I never did anything that would be considered wrong, unethical, et cetera. But it was just seemed like every chance this compliance departments were the stop business. They were like, keep you from making money, keep you from doing anything. And I wasn't For doing sure. any advertising. It was just, it was crazy. And so what the final straw was to decide to go start my own firm was I was doing fee-based financial planning, which was kind of new back in the early 2000s, for, for at least for this area, and managing money and doing everything I needed to do. But I was doing it inside the insurance company world. And uh, they kept coming back saying, well, you can't charge that for those people. You can't charge that for those people. And I'm like, well, why? They agreed we were going. And it wasn't, believe me, Lewis, I was not overcharging by any means. It was mm -hmm. just like, they don't fit the criteria that we want you to do. And on top of that, not only were they doing that and saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. They were taking 25% of the fees that I was charging for doing nothing. So I create a financial plan. I create the client. I create the financial plan. I put everything in place. And then I have to send it for approval. And all they did was just kind of rubber stamp my financial plans and took 25% for doing it. I'm like, well, this is stupid. I'm going to go start my own firm. So August 1st of 08, I hung my own shingle and started my own financial advisory firm, completely independent, registered investment advisor, much like your firm. And I basically decided I was just going to go do this myself. 
And so that was the path that brought me to being independent, being on my own. Picked up my CFP, like you said, in 2006. A couple of years later, I started my own firm. And then 45 days later after that, you probably remember this, Lehman goes bankrupt and the market goes to absolute crap. <laughs> perfect timing. <laughs> yes, yes. Perfect timing and horrible timing. Perfect timing for anybody new clients, horrible climbing for my current clients. And my business plan was built upon the ability to run my business on revenues that I thought I was going to have when I projected all this out. So I went sure. into survival mode for a few years just to keep the doors open oh, for sure. and take care of my people. Yeah, I think coming in new in the business when there's a big correction is usually a good thing because the people that survive those in the industry are the winners and they're the ones that understand how to navigate. So that makes a whole lot of sense to me. So I was just thinking, as you were mentioning your story, that there's a lot of people in other industries all over the economy that have a similar type of view. It's like, well, I've got this skill set, whatever that skill set is, and it's in this niche. And my company is maybe they won't let me implement an idea that I have that I think could be really good in the marketplace. Or maybe I'm not allowed to run things in a certain way that makes a lot of sense for clients. It seems like a lot of big companies move slow in terms of wanting to tailor a solution to a certain niche. And a lot of people are branching out on their own. But once you do do that and you have a, your own business, there's a lot of different types of ways that you have to look at your financial planning, right? Oh, it's so different. Anybody that goes off and says, all right, well, I'm going to make a change. I don't like this company anymore. And I'm going to go start my own thing. That just triggers a whole lot of things that have to happen. And it's different from when you were an employee to then becoming what I would call a solopreneur. You go start your own business all by yourself. You are everything. And the financial planning, in my opinion, is so much different than when you were an employee or even different when you have a whole bunch of employees in a company, because everything leads to you as that solopreneur. Yeah. I was just thinking about a client of ours that is a CFO. He was a CFO for an energy company and then he decided to become a solopreneur. So he didn't need to, he just, it, it had to do with freedom. Like you said, freedom of time, freedom of money, freedom of relationships and changing. Of course he went through a divorce. So there was some big change in his life, but I see this more and more. So that's why I wanted to bring you on to talk about this. I wanted to hear from your perspective. What would you say the largest thing that people who are solopreneurs have to tackle with their financial plan? That's different versus say somebody who works for a corporation. The biggest difference is, is nobody's there giving you a benefit package. That's the first piece. I mean, because that falls into everything that helps you as the solopreneur get your way down the road of achieving your goals, meaning you don't have a retirement plan. I mean, you show up to work at a job, whether it's an energy company like your CFO or whatever else, there's usually a retirement plan in place. And they're just going to say, here you go, start putting money in. There's going to be health insurance. There's going to be life insurance. There's going to be disability insurance. There's going to be other things that are in there that I'll have to go find those. So that in thinking of retirement plan, or let me phrase that financial plan, those things you have to now craft yourself. And there's some amazing freedom in it, but also most of the solopreneurs don't step out knowing how to handle all that stuff. And so if we think in terms of the personal financial plan, that right there, those pieces of the puzzle are way different. And if we then take it another step further, 
And we think in terms of financial plan and what I would call one of the most important pieces, and I'm sure you agree, is emergency savings. I mean, having that emergency savings to be able to weather a storm to protect you. You need to make sure, I always tell people, you need to have six to 12 months of living expenses set aside, preferably the 12, because you not only have to make your payroll, if you're going to continue to maintain the lifestyle you have, you also got to keep the business afloat as well. So you need to be thinking along those lines to have the protection in place that's going to be different than when you were working at a job. Yeah, that makes sense. The benefit part of it is I always think about, okay, well, you have health insurance and then you have retirement packages. And when you work for a large corporation, you probably have more stock options and RSUs and all these things, whereas that's kind of no longer in the mix, but you still have opportunities with retirement plans. So (laughs) I just keep thinking about throughout the years, the rules for retirement plans change and are ever changing constantly. How are you approaching that part with people? Because I know it has to do with how many employees you have and all that, but just in general, what do you think are the low hanging fruit areas right now for solopreneurs today in just the retirement investment part? Well, the low hanging fruit starts with just if in fact they don't have a working spouse or the spouse is not participating in a retirement plan or they're single, they can always just, the low hanging fruit is just a a traditional IRA. And then you can go down the Roth IRA routes, but now you start to work your way up the ladder. And what a lot of sole openers will do is they'll just go put a SEP IRA in place. And a SEP IRA is a pre-tax retirement plan that a sole opener can contribute up to, I always say 20% of their bottom line, just to be safe for the calculation rules. Like you say, they're complicated, but my favorite thing of all, when it comes to solo openers and planning is solo 401ks. I love them because there's so much flexibility in them and the ability to put a lot of money away. So as someone continues to be more successful, it allows them to put a lot more money away. Now there's other plans above that, but in my opinion, the solo 401k is my favorite. Yeah. So and the max on the solo 401k, how does that compare to the max on the SEP? I know there's more flexibility because the SEP is real plain vanilla. What is the difference in the max? Is, are the, is the max the same? Max is the same. I'd have to look at the rules on the catch-up contribution piece that you get to do if you're over 50 in a solo K. But the max is generally the same on the SEP. But the difference is regarding the SEP is you got to have a healthy bottom line to be able to use that 20%, 25%-ish number to get up there to that max. Where the solo 401k you can start to play games with the amount you pay yourself in a salary and you can do the full salary deferral. And I just turned 50 here in December. And so, for example, myself, I can do $20,500 into my solo 401k as a salary deferral. I can do another $6,500 in catch-up because I'm over 50 years of age. If you're under 50, you can't. One of the benefits of getting older, I guess. And that gets you $27,000 of salary deferral that you can then use, which is going to be either pre-tax or Roth, your choice. And then you can come up above and do a 25% profit sharing contribution on that W-2. And the W-2, I mean, you as the solopreneur have control over the W-2. I'm a big fan of bumping your W-2 up to getting to the social security wage base max so that you can continuously be getting the maximum in to your solo 401k. And I believe I'd have to look at the numbers. I don't always try to keep those in mind because they change all the time. Yeah. 
it's in the $64,000, $64,000 you can put away this year, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So that gives you a lot of flexibility. The, the 401k gives you more options because you can make it also a Roth where versus mm-hmm. a SEP. Correct me if I'm wrong. I believe that's just all tax deferred. It's not in a Roth format. And that also gives you the ability to still get that maximum qualified plan contribution. So that's a, a lot of flexibility. I guess one disadvantage is, is what if you have more employees? Let's say you have five employees. What happens with your option with the solo 401k? It's gone. You can't do it. You got to go to a traditional 401k or a flexible 401k. And that's where then you start going down the road of, okay, well, we're going to go into what's called a safe harbor plan. And that's maybe getting more technical than you might want to go. But Mm -hmm. a safe harbor plan allows the business owner, usually the highest earning person, to still be able to meet their maximum contributions they would like to do by giving a certain amount of match to your employees. So when you have the employees then you have to start giving a match to those employees. And then it starts to become a conversation of, well, how much do we really want to give the employees when it comes to the profit sharing piece? You might end up as a business owner giving 3% or 4% match through the safe harbor. But then if you decide you want to go do another 25% of payroll, depending upon the definition of your profit sharing contribution amounts, you're going to have to share some of the love with the employees. And so if you try to give yourself 25% of your W-2, you're still going to have to give a pretty healthy chunk of your employees pay in the form of a profit sharing as well, depending upon the definition. Like I said, that's probably getting more technical than you might want to go, but depending upon the definition, you are going to have to give maybe another seven or possibly 10% of W-2 wages of your employees to be able to match your solo, well, wouldn't be 401k, solo 401k would be your contribution amount as the owner of the company or the highest paid people. If you worry about your investments, need to make complex financial decisions or pay unnecessary taxes, a lack of proper financial planning and investing may already be costing you a great deal. When you are ready to turn your peace of wealth into peace of mind, go to wealthnetinvest.com and click on the schedule a call button to talk to us and get a free consultation today. So then it becomes a trade-off between all of the other expenses that are involved more administrative expenses. So I think that's one of the things that I've seen the progression be for people who become solopreneurs. They become a solopreneur, then it's pretty easy. SEP, solo 401k, then they start growing and they need help. Then they hire people and then it becomes complicated. So there's a kind of a window, right? Of this solo 401k where it really can help. And we are talking about the solopreneur issue. I guess you're not a solopreneur anymore when you have five employees, I guess. So getting back to the solopreneur's benefits. So we talked a little bit about retirement plans, health insurance, and all of that seems to always be an issue for solopreneurs when they leave the big company. What's been going on there in your world in terms of how you're advising people? I don't know if you do advise people in that area or not, but Uh, I do. I advise on absolutely everything. I don't do absolutely everything, but I advise on everything. I've been doing this for, it'll be 27 years come June. So 26 and a half years I've been doing this. Mm -hmm. And I've morphed from the insurance side to the advisory side and realized I don't like the insurance side, but I still know it. (laughs) Sure. It's important. Yeah. And so health insurance, people got all upset about the Affordable Care Act when it came out. And rightfully so for some things. I mean, our health insurance premiums went up through the roof. But what the Affordable Care Act did is gave people the opportunity to go out on exchange and get health insurance 
with guaranteed issue. And so some clients need to go down the road. Some solopreneurs need to go down the road of just going on the exchange and getting their insurance that way, which is not always the greatest and the best, but it's still a great option for someone to go get coverage so that they know that in the event that they end up with a heart attack or they have something happen and they need a surgery that is a half a million dollars hospital stay, it's not going to bankrupt them. But what a lot of times happens is there's usually a working spouse involved is what I see a lot. And so usually the working spouse carries the benefits is what normally happens. But when that isn't the case, then we're seeing clients go out on the exchange. And I used this for many, many years. I just put together a group of one health insurance plan for my business. And so I would do a group of one would be me as the employee owner. I had my wife on there and my three daughters on there. And then we did a HSA. And that's the thing that I always tell solopreneurs to make sure they're doing is do the health savings account. That is some of the greatest tax money that you can do. Mm. So I'll go just a step further with that. The health savings account is, you know, you put money in, you get a tax deduction for it going in. You can invest it. It can grow tax free. And then when you go to pull the money out, or I should say tax deferred, when you go pull the money out, as long as it's used for expenses for healthcare type expenses, everything from deductibles to prescriptions, it comes out tax-free. So there's some tremendous benefits there and it's a tax savings for those solopreneurs. Yeah. So there's a kind of a leap, either you go on the exchange or you go with a group and every state is different, right? So depending on what you can do with that group, those plans will change state by state, but it's very interesting to see how people deal with that. I think that's probably one of the most expensive parts of the leap. Would you agree with that? Like that? Oh, totally. Yeah. That seems to be. So when you think about your profit margin, if you're going to make the leap, that needs to be the consideration you say, okay, economically, I'm going to need to cover that plus then some to make the numbers be like more advantageous versus purely numbers wise from a money perspective. There's always the freedom part, which is how do you put a number on that? Like how, how free am I and all of that? That's a big, 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 big reason why people do it. But it is something to think about. And the other thing is, let's say you're a successful, a solopreneur, and you're making a high income, and you're maxing out everything on your 401k, you're maxing out your HSA, you're doing all the right things, and you're starting to build significant wealth outside of that, okay, outside of all your kind of qualified plan things. You've rolled over your 401k from your old company, you know, you've done all that. So now you've got this nest egg. Now, let's say you got a million dollars you put aside in cash, and you've got it at a brokerage firm, something like that. What are you advising people to do for taxes? Or what kind of things do you think about beyond kind of the basics, if you will? Well, the one thing that we didn't touch on is one of the things that I generally bring in is I come back to a qualified plan called a defined benefit plan or a cash balance plan is something that I also bring in. And that then layers on top of the solo 401k. And depending upon your age, you can put 100,000 all the way up to, I think the limit is 275,000 based on your age that you can put in per year. And that then is all pre-tax money because it's like you're pre-funding a pension. And so I'll go there as an option. And now we come out back to your question of, all right, we got a million dollars in a brokerage account. Now what are we doing for taxes? Well, it depends upon the person. First, are they charitable? Do we need to go down the road of a donor advised fund? 
And then we need to start looking about how is the portfolio then optimized for taxes as well. And that could be the certain investments that we're using. That could be going down the road of tax preferential investments. That just opens up the world of opportunities and options when you're in that brokerage account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the defined benefit. So here's another scenario that I see happening a lot, and I want to get your opinion on this. You have that successful solopreneur, and they've maxed out everything, and they do the defined benefit. And then they're further down the line, they're getting towards retirement, and their asset mix is so heavily in qualified plans that every single dollar they take out for income is taxed at the marginal tax income tax rate, and they get nailed on the way out. How are you thinking about that in terms of like longer term planning in the mix between the various tax statuses of accounts? Well, the one thing that we generally will start talking to, especially if someone is achieving that level of success, we then start talking about, should we start doing some Roth conversions along the way? That's something that we do to help reduce that tax liability down the road. Then we might even start looking at, are there other investments that we should be looking into to get either tax deductions or tax preferential treatment on the road as we start to then transition. You know, a lot of people around my area, they go buy land. They buy land and doesn't really affect their taxes as much, but the revenues help to pay the taxes. And those types of areas is what I'm seeing happen a lot with my people. Yeah. What are you seeing? I'd love to hear from you. No, I agree. I agree. No, no, I'm very cognizant of the successful people that are solopreneurs or entrepreneurs to make sure that they don't get that mix too far out of whack because they lose so much flexibility. Like if you tax optimize every year, which is kind of what your CPA and most advisors will do, you'll wind up on the other end having some regrets usually. So I'm like you, I've been doing this. Well, let's see, I got started in the business in 1992. So uh, maybe I've been doing a little bit longer than you. I don't know. I've seen a few of these things go up and down, but a lot of people wind up on the other end and they're like, oh my gosh, I've got all this money in tax deferred and they're just getting nailed on the other side. So I think having a more cognizant view of the overall mix between tax deferred, tax free, even if it's not optimal this year, maybe you should pay a little more taxes and do some other things, have more tax managed accounts. Like you said, outside of your, we do a lot of that tax managed type portfolio management the other side would be there's nothing wrong with rental real estate property. It could be really good. You know, there's a lot of things you can do. So I just find that if we always tax optimize, like if you take CFP 101 and you do that, usually you wind up paying a ton of taxes later. <laughs> I'm a CFA, by the way, a chartered financial analyst, which is a little different, but they're related. I'm more of an investment person. Although we do a planning here, we have a CPA on staff and stuff. But I just wanted to ask you that question because I feel like, I just got a letter just the other day talking about all the new rules with compliance and what's going on with IRAs and 401ks and the Department of Labor. There is a big play and we don't I don't know exactly what's happening with the government, but there seems to be a big play on restricting movement with retirement plans. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that for the last couple of years, the big piece that I saw that kind of came in here a couple of years ago was where people would go and use their IRA, almost like a bank account for a little bit. They would do a rollover. They'd move the money into an account and you could take money out of an IRA for 60 days and you can put it back in almost like you never did. And they're really clamping down on those types of things. My curiosity 
that I haven't seen yet is real restrictions on the piece of the puzzle, like moving a retirement plan to another platform. I haven't seen that. It's coming. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I just got our compliance company. So we have an outside, we have a couple different outside attorneys and uh, I just got all the rules. It's definitely coming. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Let's think about this a little bit. We back up and we say, okay, we are in massive debt. We have a retirement crisis for many Americans. And there's this big pot of money in the tax deferred world, you know, 401ks, 403bs, all that. How can that all be solved? There could be some push towards, of course, this is speculation, but I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility. There could be a push towards trying to have more control from a government perspective on how that's done. When I was in Australia, I talked to quite a few people asking them about their plans and their plan is completely government run. There's mandatory contributions by the corporations and all that stuff. I just, I wouldn't be surprised, let's just put it that way, if we're moving in that direction. So we've been advising people to be careful about your tax structure, especially if you're younger. As you get older, you can't really, you don't have as much flexibility. You know, you can do some pulling money out and doing Roth conversions and stuff like that. It is costly. But if you're a high income person now and you're really putting money away, and but you're say 10, 15 years down the road, you might have a different strategy than say somebody who's right up on retirement in the next like five years. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So it's very interesting. Getting back to the solopreneurs, so we have this trend, everybody keeps moving outside of, you know, all these people are moving out of the large corporations, which I think I'm excited about that. I think that's going to lead to a lot of innovation actually in our economy. As these people get more financial footing when they're going out on their own and they need to have more employees, how are you managing that transition for them? Like, what would you advise to somebody that says, look, I got to hire three people. And now I've already got this plan. What are the steps that you would take to kind of help them just in general, make the switch from the solo 401k say to the next level? Well, let's back up just a little bit and then I'll answer that with all of these people resigning. A lot of those people that are solopreneurs that are going off and starting their own companies and being solopreneurs, what a lot of them are doing now, and this is what I advise a lot of them to do before bringing on employees is start to hire the other solopreneurs out there to support you as contractors. Mm -hmm. So it allows them to maintain that freedom and it keeps them from having to completely manage those people. And so what I generally will do is tell them, let's start looking for some other contractors that you can outsource to, to help support you and run your business. If it's in the more traditional solopreneur world that we're seeing right now. I mean, we're seeing a lot of people going into the creative side, the consulting side, the coaching side, the fractional CFO side, the management consultant. We're seeing a lot of those people. But let's say that person becomes a solopreneur and has some form of a labor-intensive type business, And they have to then transition to your question and they have a need for like real W2 employees and they're sitting in a solo 401k, for example, well, we have to make the change. There's really nothing other than, hey, we have to make this change or we're going to run the chance of having this thing be disqualified. And we, we don't want the ramifications of that because then everything becomes a tax issue. So then it's just really more of a, all right, let's go. Here's what we got to do. Let's make the change. And that's part of the value of the advisor stepping in to help guide them along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts with that because maybe you initially grow the business 
with outsourcing people, 1099 people, make sure that you're following all the rules to make sure it's 1099. But a lot of times what I find is that with solopreneurs is they can't make that 1099 thing work anymore because they're using their own equipment or something like that, that or, or some regulatory, or you have to violate some rule that would require somebody to be a W-2 person. So they're, they have to hire people and then it becomes an issue of, okay, now how am I going to deal with that? So it, it could be a little tricky for them. And that's why they need advice, right? And they need a team. They need somebody who's more of a planner like you. They need somebody who's a lawyer who is dedicated to that. They need a, a tax person, dedicated tax person, and even a dedicated insurance person sometimes. I, I know we don't do any insurance. We always refer out, but I like to have specialists for every area. That person, like th these people really know long-term care. These people really know other aspects and, uh, you know, the life part. So let's talk a little bit about insurance then, now that we brought that up. So long-term care is a big deal. Let's say you have a solopreneur who's later in their age. Let's say they're 50. They're like your age. Let's say they don't have like $10 million or anything like that. Let's say they, they've accumulated a nice sum, but they're not completely financially independent yet. But they are getting older. This is a big common place people are in, I find. They need or they have a high risk of maybe needing some long-term care. How are you thinking about long-term care? Like, when do you bring that into the mix? I usually bring it in around 55 is usually where I bring it in. And we start talking about the total picture of the client. Like you said, are they to a point where they'd be able to pay for it because they're wealthy enough? Or are they to a point where they don't have enough to make it matter? There's kind of a donut hole the way it almost looks like a little gap that it, it looks like it makes sense to consider it and doesn't make sense to consider it if you have too much or too little. And so I start with that piece. And then we start having the conversations of, is it something that we want to consider? I do everything of let's consider this. We need to have a purpose for everything we do. So we need to determine, does it make sense to consider? And then if it does make sense to consider, then we, we also need to take a look at the whole picture to determine, does it make sense? Do they have other assets that would be utilized to help take care of the long-term care? And then does the insurance then make sense to consider? So I generally bring it up around 55 years of age and we start talking about it and go that route. And then when it's time, I refer that out to somebody else to take care of that's a specialist because I don't do that. Yeah, it's very complicated and it keeps changing. <laughs> it keeps mm -hmm. changing. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. It's so funny because when you study for the CFP, by the time you finish the test, about 10% of it is not applicable. And then a year later, about 20% of it is like, there's some core things that are evergreen that will never change part of the program. And that's why every year they always send you out. Here's the new tax schedule. Here's the new, oh yeah, we changed all these. Yeah, oh, if you signed up in November for the CFP, I promise you it's not going to work two months from now. <laughs> so that's the thing that we always have to keep in mind, which brings me to the next question I had for you. What do you tell solopreneurs in terms of how they should monitor their progress? What are the key metrics they should track to make sure that they're hitting that ultimate financial independence? Well, I guess we got to determine what their financial independence is going to be. I mean, is it that they would like their business to run all by themselves on its own? Have they figured out a way to have it run on its own and therefore they're able to go do other things and build? So that, I mean, that would be one piece of freedom that a solopreneur would want to have or might want to have. But if we go down the road of the financial metrics of, oh, well, you're going to be looking at your retirement account. You're going to want to be looking at your cash flow that's coming into your personal account so that you can then determine what you're going to do. 
you need to be looking at, like you had said, those taxable accounts and investment accounts. And you would want to also be paying attention to your debt because usually the biggest piece of debt we all carry throughout our lifetimes is usually our mortgage. And so if we can get to a point where we can have our house paid off, that opens up all kinds of freedom for people to be able to retire on their terms when they want to. And so I think the metrics that people need to be watching is, are their accounts, their accounts that are meant for retirement, are they growing? Their investment accounts that might be meant for that purpose as well. Are they growing? Where are they going? How are you doing on your cash flow? How are you doing on your debt reduction? Then I ask my clients once a year, tell me what your social security statement is showing. Go log in and tell me what your social security is looking like. I don't think it's going to be gone. A lot of my clients are like, it's not even going to be there. I'm like, I don't, I don't believe that it'll be gone, but I believe that we will have a haircut in some way, shape or form, either across the board or based on income. And so I think those are the metrics. I mean, how are your accounts doing? How are your debts doing, your cash flow? And are you on pace? And then what I do in my practice is I'm constantly running projections. In every meeting, I'm running projections like, all right, here's where we are. Here's where we were last year. Here's where we're going. Here's what this looks like if we keep going the way we're going so that you at least have the peace of mind knowing you're on track. That's good advice. Look at things at least annually. Have some level of projection as to how you're doing. Monitor things because sometimes people can fall into a trap of just kind of just going and making money, but not really kind of keeping track of what they're doing and how well they're doing and whether or not they can make some adjustments. And so that's really good advice. Well, Gabe, it's been great having you on. What links would you like to share? We have your book also as well. Tell me a little bit about where we can send people. The first place, because we came on your show to talk about the book, would be my book. It is called The Solopreneur's Money Manifesto. And that is on Amazon, as well as I have a website that is called solopreneurmoney.com. Solopreneurmoney.com is where my book is. It's where my podcast lives. The podcast is called Solopreneur Money. And that is also where my YouTube channel is. And so that's the place to, what I would say, to find my media, my information. Gabe Nelson Financial Inc. is the name of my company. And the website is gabenelsonfinancial.com. If you want to associate with me and communicate with me on social media, LinkedIn is the best place for me. It's where I spend the most time. And yeah, those are the places that you can find me. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Gabe. Thanks a lot. And we will talk to you later. Thank you, Lewis. Appreciate it. For the latest episode of The Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. 